So this is a parable that we've all heard um, a lot. This is one of those parables that uh, even as, just to be honest, as I was preparing and you'd come across in the commentaries, they were like, uh, you all know this one. This is the story you all know. Um, but I, I think that, and I've been praying, that today we would be able to see it in its context as the verses that are around it. So let's back up a little bit and remember that last week Garrett walked us through the, the disciples going out on a mission trip. So Jesus had sent out the 70, they'd gone, and they, they had seen all kinds of amazing stuff. And then the text, uh, if you back up just a little bit into, into 10, the 72 returned, uh, Luke 10, 17, the 72 returned with joy. So they're excited. They get back from this mission trip, and they are pumped. They're like, even the demons had to do what we said. They're excited. We've all been on mission trips where we've been involved in something or had those times in our lives when it just seemed like everything was moving and you're just right in touch with Jesus and bam, this is just one of those great moments. And even the demons are doing what we said and Jesus corrects them and he says, hey, wait now, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy. However, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you but, to rejo- but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So here the disciples come back. They're excited about all the spirituality that's been going on. And Jesus says, stop. Stop. It's not about you and what God do- does through you. If you're going to be excited about anything, you should be excited that God saved you. And then it says that Jesus, being led by the Spirit, goes to pray. Now, Just think about this for just a second and try not to let this blow your mind. The second person of the Trinity is caught up in the third person of the Trinity in the Spirit. So he goes and prays. This is going to be some serious stuff. And so he prays and he says, I thank you, Father. There's the first person of the Trinity, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and reveal them to little children. What things is he talking about? Exactly what was preceding. That we're not to rejoice in the spirits being subject. But rejoice that your names are in heaven. All things have been handed over to me by my father. And no one knows who the son is except the father. Or who the father is except the son. And anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you. That many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear, hear and did not hear it. So first Jesus starts out and he says, Thank you God that the people who you're calling into the fold aren't who everybody would expect. Paul said, look among you. There aren't many of the wise and noble here. I mean, in a way this is kind of a, as I look around church, it's kind of a backhanded compliment. He's saying, hey... There are not a whole lot of who's who here. We, we don't have a whole lot of millionaires that walk into the building. I'm just saying. As I was thinking of, uh, of an example of, of a loser, I immediately thought of myself. And, and I, I remembered a story that when I was uh, in college, and then just in, took air. Oh, no. No, I was, I was in college, and I went to, I went to Sanford, which is kind of a, kind of a rich school, and I, I, I had a little bit of a complex. I was working at nights, uh, stripping and waxing floors, and during the day, and the glamorous job of Taco Bell to pay my way through school, and, and I, there was a girl in one of my classes that I thought was, was pretty good looking. She was kind of hot, not nearly as good looking as my wife, 
I'm just, but she was good looking. And so I, I knew that I was, I was, she, she was a lot better. Um, had a lot more money than I did, and so I, I didn't want to ask her out because I knew I couldn't really afford to take her someplace fancy. And so I, I ended up having some friends that were working on the building in downtown Birmingham. If you're dry, it used to be the AmSouth building. If you're driving into Birmingham, it's the building that's got the balls on top. Um, and they, they were working in the construction there, and they had kind of walked me through the marble on the outside of that building is a, is a really cool Italian marble, and I was just intrigued by the way that they were attaching it to the building. And so in that relationship, I got permission to, come, uh, to, to put together what I thought was going to be the perfect date. I mean, I was Rico Suave in the way that I planned this out. Would I had, Rico, nobody, nobody, there's a very select age group that understood that reference there. But I thought I was uh, uh, being, being super cool. And so what I did was, is I, I got the, these guys, some of the guys I knew to let me in the building after the construction was over. And it was one of the floors that wasn't quite finished. And so it was just all open. They had some metal studs up and the glass was up. So the girl wasn't going to get sucked out of the building, but it, it was just kind of open. And so I had gone beforehand and I'd put out a blanket and I had had somebody set up a boom box. The, the, the guys, it was, it was kind of like your iPhone, but in a big box. And so I had some, mu- had some music set, set there and I, I had gone and gotten the food. And so I'd, I'd asked the girl out and she'd agreed to go out. And so we go downtown Birmingham and we go in and we go up to this room and she's curious to what's going on. And I'm thinking, I have got this. This is like the most romantic thing ever and we walk over and when she realizes that I had created this picnic on the 20th floor of the building she looked at me and said if you didn't want to pay for a meal you didn't have to ask me out so at that point you're like so do we just do I just take you home now how how does this work I'm not real sure how all this pans out um so as I'm I'm not Rico Suave and again none of you know what that means uh Don, I can't think of anybody fun. Give me somebody here. <laughs> Ann's got nothing. So <laughs> apparently I'm not a very good public speaker either. So my point is, is that there aren't a whole bunch of folks, folks among us who are going to be the, the best of or the greatest of. You know, because those people don't have need of anything. And so Jesus is saying, thank you, God, that there are people that you drew to me, that I revealed who the Father was, and they see who the Son is. And thank you that it's people who normally this world would never look at and say, now that's the person. That's the guy. I I remember when we were with the IMB and I was uh, listening to the statisticians talk about um, how big revivals start around the world. And we, we have a group in the International Mission Board that studies that so that we can see what triggers those things. And in Indonesia, there was a, a, it, it's going on right now in Java, the main island, there's a revival that's broken out. And as they followed and looked backwards and backwards and backwards to see what was the catalyst that kicked this off, there was a, an American dental team Dentists haven't helped anybody ever. And here are these dentists go to Indonesia and they, they're, doing, they're giving out free dentistry. And this toothless, homeless woman ended up getting saved. And she wouldn't shut up about how much the gospel had impacted her. And all of the other Christians in Java were like, you're going to have to calm down. If it's a Muslim country, you're going to end up going to prison. You're going to end up going to jail. And she would go on street corners when cards would come up and just tell people about how Jesus saved her. 
And God used that person that the culture and the society would say had no value, was completely worthless. There's no way we think that if God could only save, and we think of somebody powerful and important, if God could only save George Clooney, then the whole world would listen. And what this text is saying is, nope, that's not how it works. And so, if you noticed in the little keywords and the transition words that the 72 return and then in verse 21 it says in the same hour and then before he starts the parable of the good samaritan he just goes and behold so the the parable of the good samaritan is a story that luke has looked across the life of jesus and pulled out and put in this context to explain what jesus is talking about So we have to keep it in context. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. So at some point in Jesus' ministry, a lawyer comes. Now when we hear lawyer, I say, I don't know about you, I think like Perry Mason, three-piece suit. So this is not a lawyer in that vein. This is a person who's an expert in the law as it is in the Old Testament. So this is a, a professional religious person. And so this lawyer stands up to to hit Jesus up for some questions. His motivation is not uh, that he actually is interested in the gospel. He, like all the other people who are coming along, are trying to to make Jesus stumble. They're trying to make him and make himself look good. We see that because one of the things that the text says. So the lawyer stands up to put Jesus to the test and says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So that's the question that drives the rest of the parable. Here this lawyer asks Jesus, essentially, what do I have to do to go to heaven? What do I have to do to make it to heaven? So Jesus, being a good teacher, being a good rabbi, turned that back at that lawyer, gave him a question in the Socratic method. Well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So the lawyer says, Jesus says, so what do you read in the law? The guy says, how do I go to heaven? And Jesus says, well, what do you think? How do you think? And he said, well, all you got to do is love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor just like you love yourself. Now, this gentleman, because he's a human being, had to know as he was saying those words that he can't do that. Nobody in here can love God with all their heart, with all their, in the heart, in this case, uh, the Greek word for heart is referring to the seat of our emotions. So emotionally, spiritually, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, And then love your neighbor just like you love yourself. This lawyer had to know that as he was saying that, that's not, I'm not doing that. I mean, I would say the vast number of people in this room committed idolatry last night. Not referring to any particular football games, I'm just throwing that out there. That there were some people that lost their religion last night. That that was not a moment that you were showing the fruit of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, kindness. I'm just, I'm just guessing here. 
By the very fact that I can track our attendance and after Alabama loses a game, our attendance will drop by about 10% and giving will drop. I don't know why people don't give when Alabama loses. Are they giving that money to the program so that Nick can improve on their line? I don't know what's going on there. But it affects people. So this lawyer, we know that he, he was convicted as he said it because Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. If you just love God with everything that you've got and love your neighbor like yourself, you'll go to heaven. Now, the lawyer, and it says, trying to justify himself. So this lawyer knows what Jesus just did. He gave him an impossibility and said, just do that. If you'll just go ahead and fly up there and touch the sun, then you get everything that you want. The lawyer, knowing that there's no way he could do it, tries to, it seems to me, be a little bit of a smart aleck and say, okay, then Jesus, who's my neighbor? So that's the context that we have this parable in. Jesus has been talking about how we should all celebrate, not that God has used us for something, but that our name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Jesus has celebrated that not many super smart, good-looking, hip people are in the kingdom, but that God has chosen the children of this world, the worthless things of this world, to present the gospel to. In that context, we're shown this lawyer. So Jesus responds to the lawyer with a story. A story that we've all heard a thousand times. As I was preparing uh, last week and this week for this particular sermon, um, I actually found where I preached on this text uh, two other times in my ministry. And I will say, after, in light of the preparation for this, I preached on it poorly. Um, this is a, not only is this a parable that we all know, it's one that you don't even have to be a Christian to know. You don't have to live or grow up in the church to know. If you were to Google uh, politics and Good Samaritan, I got 60,000 hits. Politicians love to use this parable. In fact, just a few years ago, uh, President Obama uh, quoted this. This is a quote from his speech to the Clinton Global Initiative. Every faith community can take action as well by educating their congregation, by joining in coalitions that are bound by a love of God and concern for the oppressed. And like that good Samaritan on the road to Jericho, we can't just pass by indifferent. We've got to be moved by compassion. We've got to bind up the wounds. Let's come together around a simple truth that we are our brother's keepers and we are our sister's keepers. President Obama. I was able to also find where President Trump quotes this exact same parable. So people on two opposite ends of the political spectrum use this this particular parable is a way to, to, to give themselves justification for whatever it is they're doing. And I'd be willing to bet that you could find, I couldn't find it, but I'd be willing to bet that if you just picked a, a negative in your mind or a positive in your mind politician, they've used this story. We think we know what this means. We think that this is about being kind to each other, just as President Obama said. That the point of this story is, is you need to be nice to people who are around you. You need to watch what's going on, and if you see somebody who's in trouble, you need to help them. And that would be all well and good, except that doesn't fit at all in the context that we see here in Luke as Jesus is telling the story. That Luke is saying, okay, here, let me give you a story to prove this point. Well, this story wouldn't fit into that. So let's try. Let's pretend. Let's pretend that we haven't heard this story a thousand times before. 
Let's try to approach this story, remembering what's going on around it in the text, and read it with fresh eyes. Okay, so let's look at the story. Actually, as we read the story, that was all introduction, so let's pray. Father God, as we approach this parable, Lord, I pray that you would help us to focus on what is actually being said and what is actually going on. Lord, I pray that you would help us to jettison our preconceptions, God, that we would come to this story with fresh eyes. God, I pray this morning you would teach us. Lord, you promised us that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. And so I pray, Lord, I plead with you to send your Spirit in that capacity. Lord, I pray that you would move. God, I pray that you would soften our hearts so that we're willing to learn and change. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so here Jesus is telling the story to this lawyer who asked the question, who is my neighbor? Now, to that lawyer, the answer to that question would have been someone who looked like me, believed the exact same things that I did, ate what I did, and acted just like me. That would have been his definition of a neighbor. So, Jesus, instead of responding to him with, here's what your neighbor is, he says, let me tell you a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. Now, let's, let's give a little bit of background here. So, Jericho is kind of up on a mountain, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, down in a valley, and Jerusalem is up on a mountain. I think it's around 6,000 feet elevation between the two cities. And they're, very, they're not too far from each other. And so that much elevation that quickly means that the road going from Jerusalem to Jericho wouldn't have been straight. It would have had all these switchbacks in it to, so that your, your donkey or, or yourself, whatever's carrying stuff up that mountain, wouldn't uh, be strained too hard. And you could just kind of go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. An unfortunate side effect of that is that there are all these blind curves that you come to, all of these little gullies that go off the side. And so this road is famous all the way up to like the 13th, 14th century of a place where robbers hang out because there's lots of places for them to hide. We actually have, in, at the end of the 13th century, first to the 14th century, documentation from the crusaders who are trying to deal with robbers on this exact same road. So this is an area that is known for um, being a bad area, a, a, a road that you would not want to go to on your own. In fact, as I was looking at sermons, I found two different sermons where the person the, took as the point of this sermon, essentially, don't be stupid. You should, he shouldn't have been in the neighborhood anyway because he would have known by himself because he should have known that he would have been robbed, which is really reaching, like way out there reaching. So anyway, he falls among robbers who strip him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road. All right, so let me, let's stop here for a minute and talk a little bit about parables. Because I will say that as I looked at my own sermon from uh, five or six years ago on this text, one of the things that I did was I, looked, I, I brought up the fact that as a priest, he may have thought that Samaritan was dead. And so because of the Levitical laws, um, he, would have, uh, he would have made himself unclean if he had touched him. And I... And in, in studying this and praying about this and listening to other people preach on this, I, I came to a realization, this is a parable. Okay, this, 
This is a story that Jesus made up. This, this priest and the man who's beaten up didn't actually exist. And so if we go way out on a limb starting to assign things like that, we're missing the point. Kind of reminds me of when I went out back to Sanford. Today's Sanford Day. I'm not sure why. When I was at, at Sanford, I, took it, I, I majored in English, and I was taking an English class. And in this particular English class, we had to write a paper on whether or not we thought um, Hamlet was gay. That was what the subject was. And so for weeks, people defended their point back and forth about whether or not Yes, I think that Hamlet was gay, or no, I didn't, do not think that Hamlet was gay uh, in this particular Shakespearean English class. It went on forever, to the point that I, being the young, immature jerk that I was, lost all patience. And so I finally raised my hand, and I said, Hamlet was not gay. Hamlet was not straight. Hamlet was a figment of William Shakespeare's imagination. He never really lived. We've wasted all this time talking about whether or not somebody's something that he can't be because he wasn't real. Ah! At which point I got to visit Dr. Laster, who was the chair of the English department, and explain to her why I couldn't control myself in class, which is a totally different story that maybe we'll cover at a different time. My point is, is that the priest wasn't thinking anything because he wasn't real. And the reason why Jesus is telling the story is because that lawyer... It was an evangelism moment for Jesus. And so if we get wrapped around a hub about what the priest was thinking or what the the Levite was thinking or what the, the Samaritan was thinking, then we're missing the point. Jesus is telling a short, pithy story. And his motivation at that moment is he wants that lawyer to realize he's lost so he can get saved. This is Jesus telling a story. What he's, his goal point is, is he wants the lawyer to go, oh, I can't do it. So here we, we go back. So the priest comes along, sees the guy, passes on the other side of the road, and goes on. The priest is followed by a Levite, which would have also been a religious uh, group of people. The Levites, they were not son, uh, sons of Aaron necessarily, so they wouldn't have been able to do the, the heavy lifting in the temple. They were more like the helpers. And we have found lots of examples of not stories like this, but examples of teaching that would always go a priest, a Levite, and then just a common Jew. And so Jesus is throwing them a curveball when he does a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. He takes it to the next level of, oh my gosh, this is somebody that, that nobody would have liked. So the priest comes by, passes by on the other side of the road. The Levite comes by, has nothing to do with him. And now here comes a Samaritan. Now, Samaritans to Jews, there was a racial difference. And the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other could not get along. There was all kinds of conflict there. There was racial issues. There were linguistics issues. There were, there were religious issues. The Samaritans, about a hundred years before this, they had built somewhat of a temple and the Jews came in and just tore it down. The Samaritans, if you read the stories in Ezra and Nehemiah, the Samaritans are, are come from the same group of people that as the temple is attempted to be built, tried to keep it from being built. They're the bad guys in the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so the Jews looked down their nose at the Samaritans. The Samaritans looked down their nose at the Jews. They did not get along. 
And so as this story is being told, when Jesus threw this curveball, uh, I mean, it sounds like a bad joke. A, a priest, a, a Levite, and a Samaritan are walking down the road. When Jesus throws that curveball, they would have thought in their mind, no way is this Samaritan going to help this guy who's completely opposite from him in every way. So the Samaritan comes along. The Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. So here this guy comes. He does immediate first aid. The oil and the wine, the guy's beaten within an inch of his life. Literally, the Bible says that they even stole his clothes. So he's half naked, laying there, bleeding out. And this Samaritan, someone who would have hated him, would not have got along with him, just has compassion, pours the oil on him, put the wine as an antiseptic would have poured on him, and, and binds him up, takes him, puts him on his own donkey. And again, remember the terrain. This isn't just throwing him on his donkey uh, and then just... We're talking about walking uphill in a big way. I mean, quite a few of us can't even do like three stairs without having to stop and take a break. And so he's going up this terrible terrain. The man's on his donkey. He goes to an inn. Now, the inn, uh, the Greek word for inn here literally means common house. It's not an inn like you thinking may think of like a hotel. He didn't take him down to the Hotel 6. This is like a, 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 a very um, shady kind of place where everybody just comes we've recently or within the last 20 years found in, in a roman archaeological dig found an inn like this a common house like this and um the menu board it was it's still there and so the the nightly rent in this particular inn that they found that was very similar to this was one thirty second of a denarii per night that was the rate so this is not a nice place but it's all there is, right? You've got the half-sick guy there. And so he gets him to this common house, unloads him, stays with him all night. We know that because in verse 35 it says, and the next day. So he stays with this guy. He doesn't know all night. And then the next day he goes to the innkeeper and says, you take care of him. Here's two denarii, which would have been 60 days rent. Here's two denarii, whatever else you need, I'll come and pay you later. Which is just opening yourself up to getting ripped off, isn't it? I mean, do you, you go to a place that's kind of got a reputation to be seedy, kind of a nasty place anyway, and you go, look, whatever you spend, just let me know and I'll pay you back. All of this stuff that Jesus is describing here, everybody in the crowd's going, I wouldn't do that. Oh, I wouldn't, definitely wouldn't do that. I wouldn't put him on my donkey. I would have at least rode with him. I wouldn't have wasted my wine and oil on him because a traveler would only carry a limited amount. Why would you waste it on somebody you don't even know, much less somebody that I don't like? I'm certainly not going to overpay to that extent, and I'm absolutely not going to open myself up to extortion like this. It's whatever... Whatever you run, I'll come back and, and pay you. The point that Jesus is trying to make is nobody would do that for anybody except themselves. Now, think about it. 
if you found out that you had a disease that was curable, but the treatment wasn't covered by insurance and cost $600,000, you've got to come up with $600,000. If you can come up with that amount of money, you'll be able to live, but if not, you're going to die. What would you do for yourself? You'd sell your home. You'd sell all your stuff. You'd be hitting eBay. You'd be raising the money for yourself, right? Let's just be honest with ourselves here. If it's your life, what would you give if you knew that you were going to die? What would it take to make you go all out? I'm all in. You're going to die unless. Is your car worth more than your, your life? Is your house worth more than your life? I would dare say, if everybody in here were really, really honest, other than our family, there's not a whole lot that we wouldn't give up if it meant the difference between life and death. I mean, what's the point of having a car if I'm dead? I mean, we joke a lot in here about, you know, my, my love for old uh, cars, but if I had a 69 Cuda, I'd give it up to live. Why would I leave it for whoever Ann marries after me? <laughs> Took some of you a little bit of time to put that together, but that's okay. And what Jesus is, the picture he's painting here with this Samaritan is he's doing whatever it takes for this other guy. And the point of the story that Jesus is making isn't for us to go, oh, I should be nice too. The point of the story is to make us realize none of us would do that. If I'm going down the street and there's somebody that I don't know, maybe wearing an Auburn shirt. I'm looking at you, man. Uh, somebody who I don't like and they're hurt, I'm not giving up my stuff for him. I'm not selling my house and giving every way away for that guy because I don't know him. So everybody in that audience is going to hear Jesus telling a story and go, I'm not a neighbor. Because here's the thing. The good news isn't good news unless there's bad news first. The point of the story is Jesus wants this lawyer, instead of justifying himself, to go, I'm not doing that. It goes back to what Luke's original point was. Don't rejoice about the stuff that God uses you to do. Tom, don't rejoice that people are, are, are coming to North Glencoe. Don't rejoice, Sunday school teacher, that people are learning the Bible in your class. Don't rejoice, choir member, because people think you can sing awesome. Rejoice because you were lost and undone and God loved you enough to save you. And if we realize that, if we realize that, that shifts the whole view, not only of this story, but of the New Testament. Again, how often if we walked up and down this street and asked people, what are we known for as Christians? How many people would say, you know, Christians are really known for how they love. That's because we present ourselves to the world the way the 70 came back. That's the natural way to do it. Hey, 
God's doing all kinds of awesome stuff with me. Instead of approaching the world and saying, if God can save a loser who has nothing to offer him like me, then God can surely save you. We rejoice as Christians, not because of the things that God has used us for, not because of this building, not because of anything other than the fact that God saved you, and that's a miracle. And so the point Jesus is trying to make with this lawyer is not to get him to walk away and say, all right, so now I'm going to be nicer to people. No, it's to hear this story and go, I can't do that. I don't love my neighbor as myself. I need a Savior. And so as we look at this parable, let's realize if you back up, back up where where Jesus is praying and he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, You realize that our Father in heaven looked down across creation and he made a way. And so often we act like when the way to go to heaven is by working a list. Here are the things you do, here are the things you don't do. Bam, go work the list and you make it to heaven. And what Jesus is trying to show this lawyer and what Jesus is telling us is there's no way we can earn it. It's impossible. What Jesus says here, that no one knows the Father except I reveal it to him, he said in another place, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me. God made a way through his Son. And so as we come to a time of invitation, ask yourself, Ask yourself, have I faced up to the bad news and accepted the good news? Do I look to Jesus and Jesus alone as the author and finisher of my my faith? If you're a believer, are you living that out? You see, Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, But the fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, goodness, gentleness, kindness, long-suffering... Against, their, uh, against these, there is no law. See, as a Christian, we don't try to act like we can live this out. We walk in the Spirit, and that's just the fruit we have. We're not trying to glue apples on an oak tree. Father God, I pray that you would apply your word to your people's hearts. God, I pray that you would change us. God, I pray that you would move us. Lord, we pray that your Spirit would convict and draw. In Jesus' name.